This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. There's so much irony over this entire story. A lot of death and a lot of shooting of bad people. Do we consider James Brockman a bad person? I don't. I really don't. I think that he had certainly some questionable qualities. But I think that there's enough in there of the people that he chose to defend and all the attorneys on both sides of the table came out and said what a great asset to the Houston legal community James Brockman had been. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author Mike Vance wrote a book about a notorious criminal defense attorney in Houston. It's called Getting Away with Bloody Murder. And Mike's been with us before. I talked with him on the last season of Wicked Words, and I'll let him remind you about that case from 1910. It's the one that led to his discovery of J.B. Brockman, the lawyer at the center of this story. I came to this book because of another case that I found in the previous book, which was Murder and Mayhem in Houston. It was called The Heights House of Horror. And it was a 1910 case where a family of four, very young family of four and their border were all killed in the middle of the night. They never really totally figured out who did it, but they honed in on this one suspect who was the lover of the young wife. And he ended up in jail briefly. They let him out. Three years pass. He goes back to jail when his alleged accomplice came and confessed to the whole thing. And ultimately, after another year, the case goes away. He was freed. So in the course of this, I'm thinking, well, that's pretty amazing. Turns out the lawyer was a guy named James B. Brockman or J.B. Brockman. And the more I dug and looking in these Houston cases and, and Houston area cases, Brockman's name came up over and over. And it became apparent that he was the Percy Foreman of his day or Racehorse Haynes or pick a big defense lawyer that's flamboyant, Perry Mason. I mean, he was the Perry Mason in real life of Southeast Texas. Perry Mason, I think, is the one that people will recognize the most. I kept digging and digging, and every case, I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. It was fiction, but it was not. Just amazing story. So I ended up pulling that out of the first book to keep it a separate book just about J.B. Brockman. I think that the story of the defense attorney is an important one to tell. So I'll be interested in hearing about Mr. Brockman. But before we do that, we have heard already about turn of the century Houston, but just remind us of where we are and what it was like then when James Brockman was at his peak as a defense attorney. Houston liked to think of itself as a cosmopolitan up-and-coming city. 
And it was growing. It certainly was growing. Four different times in the history of Houston, the population doubled from one census to the next. So the growth was never, never slowed in that city, including during the Depression and times when the rest of America kind of came to a standstill. But you're still dealing with a city of about 50,000 people. The justice system was everything that you would expect a justice system to be in the South in 1895-1900. Segregation was as strong as it would ever be at that time period. And there are case after case that I ran across, Brockman's and other attorneys, where African-American defendants are just getting railroaded because, hey, we need somebody to put in jail. Can we start with Sid Preacher and see where that takes us? So we just know that J.B. Brockman is in the back. He will be getting this case at some point. But let's back up and tell me about Sid Preacher in this case. Sid Preacher had been on the Houston police radar for quite some time. Basically, he's a teenage gang leader. He worked in an area called Fifth Ward that you still hear references to that. It's a racially mixed neighborhood, heavy on railroad employment. So a lot of the people there were working class. There were some nicer areas of Fifth Ward, but it was the one ward of Houston that was on the north side of Buffalo Bayou as Houston developed. And it was always kind of an outcast in one way or another. Sid Preacher, that was his turf. And his family had moved from a a little town called Liberty, Texas, that's about a county away from Houston. And they were hardworking people, worked in the railroad. Sid, not so much. He went off on his own. His brother occasionally would get involved in some of the criminal activities, but there were running buddies and you'd keep seeing their names show up in the police reports. In 1895, Sid ended up being involved in a triple homicide. And at the time, he's still not of age. He's under 18. He had been insulted the best that I can gather. And this is from looking at the newspaper articles and the police reports such as they still exist. He had gone to an African-American theater. There was an area called Peter's Alley, and it was this little hodgepodge of rundown shanties where people lived in bars. And there was the back of this theater called the Variety Theater. That was a black theater, and people would congregate in the alley back there. And best I can gather, Sid was hitting on one of the uh, African-American women. And Sid is black, or is he... Sid is white. Okay. Would white people be welcomed in a predominantly black club or bar at that time period? Inside the bar, probably not. The lower you get on the economic scale, the less segregation might exist. And that was certainly the case in Fifth Ward in Peter's Alley on this level. Sid, whether she responded or turned him down, I don't know. But some of the men that were around there didn't like seeing this white guy hitting on this African-American woman. And trouble ensued. He ended up with a knife cut over his ear. He ran down the block to an Italian-owned store. We never even get the name of the guy that owned it. It's just referred to as the Dago store in a couple of places. He grabbed some of his friends. Apparently, that's where they all hung out. They armed themselves with a shotgun and an old rifle and a pistol and head back. They're going to confront the person who cut Sid's ear. And if you're reading the testimony, it's this almost call to arms. He keeps saying, are we men? Well, you're 17, so that's debatable. (laughs) But are we men? Are we going to go back and stand up for our rights, basically? They go back there. 
And he and his friend, a guy named Lawrence Reynolds, is the other shooter. They end up killing two men and a woman, all African-American. And it just so happened that on their way back there, Houston at the time employed a couple of black police officers to better deal with that segregated population. Mm -hmm. And two of them stopped these boys who were walking there with a rifle and a shotgun and said, where are you going? And they said, we're going hunting. And they let them go. Well, these two police officers were nearby. So when they hear shots, they come running, probably ended up saving the lives of Sid Preacher and Lawrence Reynolds and some of the other ones. Because what, they were outnumbered, I assume. Heavily outnumbered and probably would have been killed in return. It turns out one of the guys that was killed was a mistaken identity that looked like somebody who may have interacted with Sid Preacher earlier, but he shot the wrong person. Uh, The woman just was collateral damage who was sitting next to the other guy. So it goes to trial. And J.B. Brockman, who is a, a baby lawyer at the time, ends up being Sid's attorney, probably because that's all that Sid could afford. Hmm. And Brockman was just starting out. He's not well known at all at the time. It goes to trial and the stories completely change. They had all kinds of physical evidence and witness testimony against Preacher showing that he had been the aggressor in this entire thing. And by the time it gets to court, everybody else's case was thrown out Hmm. because the African-American witnesses disappeared or didn't want to talk. And some of the physical evidence had gotten misplaced. And it was clearly a predetermined outcome. The one thing that made it actually go back to trial a second time was that the DA or whomever had written up one of the names incorrectly. It was a guy named Rufus Willis, and they had written down Willis Rufus. Mm. So that had to go back to court a second time. And half an hour after the trial ended, Sid Preacher's a free man. He walks out. Brockman forms a relationship with this guy and ends up using him as an expert witness in other criminal cases. How? What's the qualification that he himself is a criminal? Well, that's a question that the DA asks on a regular basis. <laughs> they uh, they didn't shy from pointing out, uh, you mean the guy that killed three people and got away with it is your <laughs> expert witness? And Brockman, his answer was, well, he knows the criminal underworld and he can tell you that this was not a crime and this was just the way things are. He keeps showing up as an expert witness. And at the same time, you're seeing reports that Sid Preacher continues to run his criminal gang. And it just gets stronger. What kind of magic did he conduct in this case? You said that physical evidence disappeared. Is this all connected to money? As far as the witnesses go, I think it was probably threats and intimidation were more likely than money. The evidence, hard to say if somebody got paid. I certainly would not put that behavior past any unknown person in the legal law enforcement community in Houston at the time. But it also could be an element of just not wanting racial conflict and whether that was done, what percentage was animosity and what percentage were these people thinking We're going to stave off any potential conflict by not convicting the white guy of uh, a triple homicide. Hard to tell. And if it's questionable, right, there's no cameras to prove that they were the ones who came and there was a confrontation. If nobody's willing to talk, and then I'm not sure what the physical evidence would be except people arming themselves where they could just say this was self-defense. This seems like a good time to talk about how J.B. Brockman ended up in this situation to begin with where he's defending somebody who is obviously at a lower socioeconomic class than perhaps other clients he would aim for. How did Sid Preacher afford him or was he affordable as an attorney? 
Brockman is one of the most fascinating stories that I have ever run across. Let's hear it. I will say, I'm not sure how much of it is it's <laughs> made up. <laughs> because you would read interviews with Brockman over the years, and his story completely changed. Mm. He was born in Georgia just before the Civil War. So he was a small child when the Civil War happened. His father died during the war. His mother was blinded during the war. And from there, there are stories that Brockman would tell about how he ended up in New York and was mentored by an attorney and became an attorney. Other stories put him in Ohio, the same thing. Other stories in New Orleans, same thing. None of those are backed up with any sort of evidence whatsoever. But he's the source on all of this. He's the source on all of this. Okay. He's a guy that probably loves sitting around drinking with all the reporters in town. And the reporters love him because he makes up colorful stories. And he's certainly covering colorful trials. I know that he worked as a clerk in a store. His brother was with him, his next older brother. And there's no evidence that he was an attorney at all. He did know an attorney there. <laughs> he then goes to Fort Worth and lives in Fort Worth for a while. There are a variety of different schemes that he's involved in. At one point, he shows up in Waco being arrested trying to break into a hotel. Hmm. And he finally is in Richmond, Texas, today a suburb of Houston. Back then, it's separate city. And that's really the first time that I can really tie him to a law firm at all. And looking through the legal records in Fort Bend County, where Richmond is, there's no evidence that he ever actually practiced. I think he just had a job at this law firm. And in 1895, miraculously, he's in Houston listed as an attorney with attorneys from this law firm in Richmond. He stayed in Houston. His next case after that murder case where he's like fifth chair, the next case is him defending a woman who was accused of performing an abortion. Hmm. And right after that, he hooks up with Sid Preacher. There are stories that Brockman would literally sit in the back of the courthouse and try to stir up business when people got arrested, Brockman would be sitting outside going, hey, do you need an attorney? Well, what else are you going to do if you're just starting out? You got to get clients from somewhere, right? Yeah. So I don't think that Sid Preacher was out a lot of cash when he hired J.B. Brockman to be his defense attorney. So this was a starter client for him, essentially. And a big case, a triple murder to be sort of one of your first big cases seems like a tall order. And then he gets the guy off. He did, and stuck with Sid Preacher for another five years and defended different members of the gang. There was a guy that, or two of Sid's gang, had broken into a jewelry store in broad daylight on a Sunday. This was in LaGrange. When everybody else is in church, these guys break in, they rob a jewelry store, and they're caught because it turns out, apparently, some people in LaGrange don't go to church on a Sunday morning. And it's broad daylight. These are not genius criminals by any stretch. No, obviously. So... They get these two guys on trial. One turns on the other, and one of them has the kind of nickname that, as a writer, you just can't <laughs> wait to run across. Foot and a half butler. I don't want to know what that refers to at all. <laughs> he had lost part of his foot. Oh, okay. Well, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So that was his nickname, Foot and a Half. And he's on trial in LaGrange. Brockman goes there to be the attorney. He's now a gang attorney. I mean, it's, this is like a, his mafia client, only it's a gang of teenage criminals. And during the trial, it's the first time that you see these Harry Mason-like tricks that are coming into play. Brockman brings a young girl out from Houston to sit behind the defense table and cry. Oh, 
That's, that was her job. That's a good job. <laughs> she just sits there and cries during the entire proceeding. At one point, he deliberately has the defendant stand up and punch one of the witnesses, the guy that had flipped on him. As he comes off the witness stand, the defendant stands up and punches him and lays him out on the floor just to demonstrate, hey, this is how wrong that is, and I'm going to stand up for my name. <laughs> Brockman, at one point during the trial, gets arrested for contempt of court for repeatedly violating the judge's orders, and the judge puts him in jail. At this point, Brockman has two law partners. His practice has grown. One of the law partners has to come out from Houston to finish the trial. Wow. So as far as Brockman goes with his personal life, does he have a moral compass in his personal life? Parents or a wife or kids or anybody who could keep him straight? The parents are both long gone. By the time that he ends up in Houston, his brother is still with him. Apparently, his brother, John, traveled with him throughout his life. And while not an attorney, ended up working as the lead office admin, I guess. So John is there. And Brockman does finally get married during this time period. I mentioned that he has two law partners. One of them is an interesting story, a guy named Henry Kahn, who is one of the few Jewish lawyers in Texas, in Houston. His family had immigrated from Alsace. And Brockman took him on as a partner. The big firms in Houston, very famously, did not allow Jewish lawyers for many decades. And it wasn't until the early 1970s and a threat from Dean Keaton at the UT Law School that he would bar all of those firms from recruiting University of Texas lawyers, that those big firms started hiring Jewish lawyers. So Brockman was half a century ahead of them. So he has quite a reputation. Where are his morals? There are some things that give insight. You can't know for sure because the guy's been dead over 100 years, but not to foreshadow too much. He gets arrested a few times for getting in fights. Brockman got arrested for carrying a pistol a couple of times. So he's not a choir boy by any stretch, but there's a really telling story that's a completely different case that involves somebody in Sugarland, where a wealthy landowner had shot a prison guard over a leased convict. A what? A leased convict. The convict leasing system that was going on in Texas. Oh, yeah. We're going to have to talk about what is that? <laughs> well, right after the Civil War and the end of slavery, a lot of these former plantation owners and others, business owners, manufacturing owners, were trying to figure out how to fill that labor gap. Yeah. And one of the systems that they came up with was leasing prisoners, much like there was a case in Pennsylvania a decade ago where there was a private prison that had been bribing a judge to sentence people for small things to this private prison so they could make money. Hmm. There is evidence of a, a similar kind of system going on. They're sending people disproportionately African-American, by the way, not surprisingly, to prison. And then in turn, the prison, at first it was a, a private company out of Sugar Land, as a matter of fact, that had taken on the leasing system for the entire Texas state prison system. Eventually, the states themselves realized we can make a lot of money, and uh, they took it over on their own. Basically, you would go to the state and you would pay them a certain amount of money to lease X number of prisoners. Wow. Sugar plantations in particular, and that was probably the most brutal work that was out there, would specify we want 50, 70, whatever, Black prisoners. They would specify by race who they were leasing. The system came about in Texas in the 1870s and lasted up until the 1910s. Wow. 
I had never heard that before. Okay, so now you've got to remind me, now that I'm so entrenched in leasing convicts, I can't remember what the connection is. Well, one of these guys, and he's actually a descendant of the guy that initially had the uh, private contract to lease convicts all over the state, the Ellis family in Sugarland. The landowner, Ellis, wanted the guard to punish somebody for not doing his job, and the guard is saying he did his job. He did exactly what I want him to do. And the landowner is basically saying, whip him anyway. And the guard wouldn't do it. It escalated and the landowner shoots the guard. The guard in turn shoots and mortally wounds the landowner. Hmm, So the guard is on trial for murder and hires Brockman. Brockman came to Sugarland and when he got off the train, Ellis's family, the dead landowner or dying landowner's family, tries to hire Brockman away, and they offered to quadruple his fee. And Brockman said, no, I've already been hired. I've given my word, Hmm. and I'm going to defend this landowner. They then offered to give him five times the money to just not do anything. Yeah. Just take your money and go back to Houston. Bail on the case. Yep, bail on the case. And Brockman again said, no, I have given my word. And to me, that says a, a good amount. So it's not just about the money. So James Brockman does have his ethical rules. Tell me what happens with Sid Preacher. What ends up happening with him? Brockman continued to be his defense attorney for another five years. And finally, in 1901, Sid Preacher is now branched out. He's a little older. He's in his early 20s. He's running a gambling operation. And this big celebration in Houston called Notsuo that was an annual Mardi Gras, basically, but it happened late in the year, was going on. And the police cracked down because they didn't want these pickpockets and gamblers and all of these people disturbing the visitors to Houston. So Preacher gets upset and he has a confrontation with a particular police officer during the course of this, gets arrested. Brockman springs him from jail. It all comes to a head on Congress Avenue, middle of the afternoon, Preacher is ready to confront these policemen. He's just gotten out of an overnight stay in jail. He has his guys there, and it comes to gunplay on the sidewalk. Preacher shoots one police officer three times. The other one, an older one, starts toward Preacher and then realizes he is unarmed, which is not out of the ordinary for police officers at the time. They didn't always carry weapons. And when he realizes that, he turns and starts running. Preacher takes a shotgun and shoots him in the back. And as he's doing that, the first officer, who is lying mortally wounded in the gutter, manages to raise himself up just enough to shoot Preacher three times. So they're all three dead on the street there. Brockman immediately gets arrested for defending Preacher, and he's accused by one of the other HPD officers of encouraging Sid Preacher to go out and shoot these cops. That's what, accessory to murder or something? They were going to charge him with murder, even though Brockman was in his office and nowhere nearby. I say nowhere nearby. The office was on the same block. But he stayed there for several days. And finally, they let him go with an apology from the district attorney. 
I can't imagine that the acrimony is not surprising between a defense attorney and the police and the district attorney. Do you have any sense for what Rockman's response was to Sid Preacher's death? Was he devastated or is this just another resource that's disappeared for him? I don't think he was devastated. He did not get to go to the funeral because he was in jail at the time. He made several statements On a regular basis, the press was allowed to come to the jail and to go sit next to the cell to interview anybody of interest. And Brockman loved those moments and would give these very fiery and flowery statements to the press. And he went on at length about how he shouldn't have been in here and it was a travesty that they had put him in jail. And it was. Well, they just gave him a soapbox, obviously. And I bet he got many more clients just from that experience of being able to court the press from a jail cell. There are a couple of cases later on in his life, and with every passing year, he's getting more and more money. He continues to do some low-income clients, but he also was getting fees as high as $30,000 for defending some of the high-end people. And we're talking about in the first decade of the 20th century. Twice, he defended people. One was the brother of the sheriff, and one was the brother of one of the judges. So when it really came down to time to choose an attorney and somebody that you wanted to defend your loved ones, well, the animosity kind of went away. Yeah, your enemy becomes your friend. Well, so where does Charlie Meadows fall in on that spectrum of clients who have a lot of money versus those who don't have any? Charlie Meadows was a 1908 case, and it's just a great case to illustrate the progression of Brockman's career. Meadows was a stationary engineer, which I think is more like a mechanic, basically. He had worked at the Rice Hotel, and he ultimately ended up working at an ice plant, keeping the machinery going and all of that. So he didn't have a lot of money. He certainly wasn't impoverished. But what appealed to Brockman was probably the notoriety of the way this came down. It all started... There was a guy named Will Washington who was working at a sawmill out near Harrisburg, downstream from Houston on Buffalo Bayou. And Will Washington, right at dusk, the last light of the day is going, and he's walking along the bayou near where he worked. And he saw this trunk, a big steamer trunk, bobbing along in the slow current of Buffalo Bayou. And he went out there, managed to catch it and drag it up to shore. But by then it was pitch dark. And we're talking about an era that there was no street light to be found. Starlight and moonlight, and that's it. Yeah. So he ties it off to a bush, this trunk, and he figures I'll go back in the morning and see what's in it. He did open the trunk. He described it as busting open like a spring, and it's the body of a naked woman. Mm. She is wearing nothing but her shoes and stockings. And she'd been in there for a couple of days. As bad as the bayou may have smelt, it was still overwhelming. Not surprisingly, he runs off yelling for somebody to come help. They find the trunk, and it wasn't very hard to find a suspect because Charlie Meadows' name was quite literally plastered on the inside of the trunk. There were papers that belonged to him, receipts and various things that were in the bottom of the trunk. And police go and, and arrest him. His story never changed throughout the entire process. His story was that this woman who went by several different names, Alice Eastup, Alice Biffle, Alice Meadows, he told the story that he had first met her in Fort Worth when he had lived there. She was attractive, but also an opium addict. And she had had a couple of drug overdoses and she latched on to Charlie Meadows, even though she had been married to a couple of other guys over that period of time. 
followed Charlie around. At one point, he moved to Oregon just to get away from her, ultimately ended up back in Houston. I don't know how hard he was trying to get away from her because there's no evidence that she just found him. It's more likely that Charlie had written to her and said, hey, I'm living in Houston now. She showed up in Houston. Charlie put her in a hotel and they kind of shacked up for a week or so. And Charlie's story was that she had then decided that there was no future here. I'm going back to Fort Worth. And that was a discussion. One evening, the next day, Charlie came back to take her to the train station and found her body on the floor of this hotel room. Charlie didn't want any scandal. He was trying to establish himself as an upstanding citizen of Houston. So in a panic, he put the body in this trunk that he had loaned Alice and hired a guy to help him carry the trunk down to the bayou, rented a rowboat, taken the trunk out in the rowboat and tipped it over a few miles downstream. That's Charlie's story. Hmm. And it never buried. He hired Brockman to be his attorney. And there's a famous Percy Foreman quote, and I know I'm going to forget part of it, but Percy described his defense approach. And it was, if a man is accused of his dog has bitten somebody else, the first one is that dog didn't bite you. The second one is the dog didn't mean to bite you. Well, maybe the dog bit you and it didn't really hurt you. And if none of that works, that's not my dog. (laughs) And that's kind of Brockman's approach here. Brockman goes in and he said, well, we think that Alice died of an overdose or it could have been an accident. Or if it was neither of those, there's no evidence other than the fact that she was in Charlie Meadows' trunk. There's no evidence that indicates it was anybody else in Houston that had an equal shot at coming over there and killing her and leaving her body on the hotel room floor. They had two trials that were almost identical, same witnesses, same testimony, and in both cases, hung jury. What? How is that even possible? (laughs) Well, that's a great question. In both cases, People try to speculate what the count was in the jury room. They're saying it's nine to three for acquittal in both cases. So the DA, a lot of times, would give up at that point. And in this case, he did not. You can imagine body floating in the trunk. This is a, a lot of press. The public is eating this one up. He ends up bringing it to trial a third time. Brockman presents, yet again, the same exact case. And this time, at the at the end of the trial, the jury says, well, before we go back to the jury room, we're all kind of hungry we'd like to go out to eat. So the county pays for them to go out to a restaurant. They have a great meal. They come back and 10 minutes later, they hand in an acquittal. So apparently the jurors all thought, you know, we can get a good meal on the county dime out of this. What convinced them though? I mean, what was it that he said that made what seems to me pretty clear evidence that made them doubt it? I went back and read the newspaper reports and what court records are left. Never changed. It's the same exact case three times. Two hung juries and then a very, very fast acquittal. Charlie Meadows ultimately ended up getting married to a woman that worked at the ice plant that had been a character witness for him in the murder trial. So he is now known, Brockman, for getting people out of what seemed to be impossible cases. It looks to me, if I'm doing the math right, that Sid Preacher happened in 1895 and then Charlie Meadows in 1908. So there's a 13-year difference there. Where does Brockman's career and ultimately his life, where does that end? Brockman got involved in more and more high-profile cases. He ended up doing appellate work when it got to the point by 1905, 1908. There are cases in other parts of the state that somebody would get convicted with a different attorney, and they would come and hire Brockman to appeal their case. 
And more often than not, Brockman was successful. He became an expert. He was obviously a very smart guy with no legal training. He was never a member of a bar association, anything. But he became an expert to the point that he could have these cases overturned. Hmm. He ended up getting involved in a few cases that came to Texas from New York, where there was an interstate connection. And one of those was the William Marsh Rice case. Now, let me remind everyone about this case because Paul Holes and I covered it in Buried Bones. William Marsh Rice died mysteriously in 1900. He had a lot of money that he was planning to use to build a great private university called Rice University. But when he died, two people were accused of conspiring to kill Rice and steal all his money. One was Rice's valet, Charlie Jones, and the other was an attorney named Albert Patrick. Patrick was in prison for Rice's murder, and Patrick's family wanted to hire Brockman. They end up hiring James Brockman to try to find witnesses, and in particular, try to locate Charlie Jones, who was Rice's valet, who allegedly had murdered him. The DA in New York had cut a deal with Jones, never charged him at all, and there's all kinds of evidence that he was then paid to go away and hide. And so the Patrick family is hiring Brockman to find him. And it's in the midst of that, that Brockman becomes, I won't say paranoid, because there's ample evidence to say that he was right, that people are after him. There's correspondence that was pulled from the mail, where Brockman would mail something back to the family and the letter would never get there. There's evidence that he found that he would mail off and it would get taken from the U.S. Post. All kinds of things like that. Well, the mayor of Houston at the time was a guy named Baldwin Rice, and he's the nephew of William Marsh Rice. Hmm. And while Captain James Baker, that's the attorney that's running everything in Houston, he's a lawyer. He looks at this from, I'm working for my client. He's not taking this on a personal level. Mayor Baldwin Rice is. This is my family. He went to New York and made all kinds of statements about these people in Houston better be careful or they're going to get what's coming to them. At one point, And it happens to coincide with 1910. So we're back to that Heights murder of the five people in the house. So there's a crime wave happening in Houston of really high-profile crimes. Around that same time period, there is a shootout between two police officers in Houston and a uh, deputy chief gets killed Hmm. by another cop in a Houston bar restaurant. There's an outcry about lawlessness in Houston. And Mayor Rice ends up hiring these two fired Texas Rangers at the time. One of these Rangers was a guy named Henry Ransom. Ransom had been fired from a a few law enforcement jobs for brutality, basically. He's now working as a special officer for the mayor. Even the police department doesn't like him being there because he's this extraterritorial guy that the mayor has brought in. And there were a couple of them that he had brought in, but Ransom's the main one. And they, again, dark streets, hid behind a pole near where J.B. Brockman always caught the streetcar back to his house and waited for Brockman. It was about midnight. Brockman had been in Galveston on another case, came back, worked for a few hours at his office, went around the corner to get on the streetcar, and Ransom stepped out from behind the pole and shot him four times. Wow. I just can't believe a mayor would order that, but yeah. The mayor, of course, denied it. Yeah. But the question in my mind is, there's no proof that the mayor did it. But the question in my mind is, why else would Ransom have done it? Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that Ransom never goes on trial for this. Oh, Ransom went on trial 
in one of the more inexplicable things that I've ever run across, the two opposing legal teams made a deal to stipulate that James Brockman was a dangerous man because he had had a weapons charge against him before of carrying a pistol. And they stipulated that Henry Ransom was an upstanding citizen. So none of that ever came out in the trial. They had made that agreement to not talk about it. And this included Brockman's law partners Hmm. that were involved in the case against Ransom. So Ransom was acquitted. A little side note, he went on the entire Texas border issue around 1915 is when it probably came to a head. The Mexican Revolution was raging across the border, and a detachment or two of Texas Rangers were sent down to the valley to supposedly stop insurrection. There were some insurrectionists down there, but by any account that you read, bar none, the Rangers ended up killing from 200 to 1,000 Hispanic citizens of the United States and Mexican citizens that had lived in the Valley for decades, just indiscriminately. Ransom was the one in charge of that ranger company, to the point that there was a a term among law enforcement officials that somebody had been ransomized. Hmm. So that's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. He ultimately met his end by getting shot in a hotel room out in West Texas. There's so much irony over this entire story. You have a defense attorney whose whole job and career has been getting really dangerous people out of scrapes and getting them out of prison. Then he himself is murdered by a very dangerous person who has a defense attorney who gets him off. And then this dangerous person has now been shot and killed. A lot of death and a lot of shooting of bad people. Do we consider James Brockman a bad person? I don't. I really don't. I think that he had certainly some questionable qualities, but I think that there's enough in there of the people that he chose to defend and the people that stood up for him later. When he was shot, he was so well-liked among the Houston legal community that they shut down courts for the day to come to his funeral. There was this enormous outpouring of support for Brockman. There was a resolution from all the judges and all the attorneys on both sides of the table that came out and said what a great asset to the Houston legal community James Brockman had been. So people recognize what my father said, which is that everyone deserves a defense. And that's your job as a defense attorney is to work as hard as you can on behalf of your client. I just think it's so ironic that he is left without justice for his own murder. The legal community certainly recognized that. The public, maybe not as much. What is this man's legacy? Did you determine anything? That's the bizarre part. This was huge news at the time, as you can imagine. He disappeared from the record entirely. Nobody that I talked to, even among old lawyers, had ever heard of James Brockman before. Now, I would think, I've mentioned Percy Foreman a few times, and he became a national standard in defense law. Percy Foreman was probably old enough to have grown up hearing about Brockman. I have no proof of that, but the time certainly fits and the place certainly fits. It's interesting. And then James Baker goes on to have Baker Botts, which is, of course, a massive law firm here in Texas, an international law firm, too. So you have people walking out of this time period with really illustrious careers and legacies, but not this man, this defense attorney who seemed like he really did make his mark on the field of law. I think so, too. And like I said earlier, James Baker, Captain Baker, he was a lawyer and he did not approach this as any personal vendetta. It was... I'm representing my client, and he was brilliant at it. Well, and the system of law that we have in the United States is adversarial. It's the way it's set up. Even Albert Patrick, as as much of a sleaze as as he turned out to be, even Patrick 
was hired by Houston firms to do work. That's what led to his association with William Marsh Rice in New York in the first place. Right. right. He had been run out of Texas and was then practicing in New York. And Houston firms turned to Albert Patrick to dig up evidence to prove that Rice and his wife considered themselves Texas residents and not residents of New York. So forgive and forget, he's an attorney. They thought he could do the job. So even Patrick was not written off by his fellow attorneys at Houston. Interesting. So I'll ask you this final question. How do you write about a man who just seems mostly sleazy, to be honest. I mean, you have written a book about someone who is not the most savoriest of characters. So how do you make him or can you make him into someone who people want to reach the end of the book to learn about? Because there is something I hope redeeming about him. I find the, if there is redemption for uh, James Brockman, he was a family guy that by all accounts loved his family. He defended his clients with a fierceness. And if you look at it from a dispassionate, like you said, you're doing your job, then Brockman was very good at it. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Patricia Pearson on writing with her high school boyfriend about the murder of his sister. John phoned me from North Carolina and he said, you know, when you think back to to when Teresa died, you know, she was found in her bra and panties. Her clothes were not nearby. She was face down in a creek in April. Do you think that was a drug overdose? And now that I was a crime journalist, I was like, ah, you know, that actually kind of sounds like a sex murder. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.